Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Killarne. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And before we get going, let me just say a couple of things. Undoubtedly, uh, most of you have heard about this recent shooting in Nashville at Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's a Christian school, church that houses a school, um, where six people die, three adults and then three children, all ages nine years old. And it made me think of a couple of things as we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, a couple of things that we've been learning from God's Word just, I think, have ministered to me. And, and, and one of those, of course, is what we talked about last week. We are to mourn with those who mourn, knowing that it's only through mourning that we receive the comfort of God. It's only the comfort of God through the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have any hope in this broken life. Chad Scruggs, who's the pastor of that church, his own nine-year-old daughter was killed in that shooting. And so not only is he having to lead the church through a season of profound grief, but just personal grief for himself. And here's an excerpt from a statement released by, by Pastor Chad. And this is, what, this is what it says. Just hours after the shooting, Pastor Scruggs spoke of his beloved daughter, Hallie, expressing both the hope and the comfort of the gospel. Through tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. Profound words of hope. And, and a lot of times we're very quick to want to go to that last part. She's in the arms of Jesus. She'll rise again. We'll see her again. And that, of course that's true. But Jesus also says, tells us to mourn with those who mourn. Ecclesiastes, weep with those who weep, because it's only through that grieving process, true grief, gospel grief, that we can have the grace and the hope and comfort of the gospel. So be praying for that church family. The second thing it reminded me of is that it seems that, that uh, the victims, the church, the school were, were targeted, at least in part, for their Christian views and beliefs. And as difficult as that might be for us to wrap our hearts and minds around, we need to remember what we looked at last week. Jesus promised it would be so. Listen to what reminds remind you of the last two Beatitudes we looked at last week. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, events like this past week remind us of what it means to be Christians in a, in a broken, fallen world that oftentimes as we are embodying the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, as we're walking in faithfulness, two things will happen in relationship to the world and culture, and they often happen simultaneously Interestingly enough, on one hand, there, there'll be great admiration, great respect, sort of awe, in the sense that the, the citizens of Jerusalem were in awe and respect of what God was doing in that New Testament church. But while at the same time, there will be hostility and persecution and violence. And so it was for the early church. Not only was there awe and respect, but there was intense persecution. It tells us that Saul was going around 
breathing threats against God's people, and these things were happening simultaneously. Knowing that this was going to be the case, and, 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 and knowing that there really is no, there's no sermon division here in the original text, that Jesus goes right from, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer for my sake, and sometimes not even for things that, that you deserve, oftentimes for things you don't deserve. And he goes right into that to remind them, here's who you are. See, Jesus knew that as, as, we, as we heard these Beatitudes, there's going to be a, a sense of, of hurt, of desperation, of weariness, of despair. And let's be honest, we're, we're, when we hear, the, hear about these things and impact the people's lives, believers in Jesus Christ, we're, we can lose heart. But Jesus said, I want you to be reminded, people of God, of who you are. I want you to be reminded of your identities. I want you to know what role and function you serve in the broken world in which you live. I want you to remember, church, Jesus is going to tell us that you are salt and that you are light. And that's where we're going to go this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. Matthew 5, we're going to, it's a short little passage, 13 through 16. One we've heard many times, I'm sure. But one I'm praying that God will give us fresh eyes to see anew this morning. Jesus is speaking. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit. We need your help. We need gospel courage. We need the spiritual fortitude to say this is who we are. This is who we are. This is the path we are to walk in this life. And Lord, it's hard. Being a disciple is hard. Yes, there's flourishing. Yes, there's joy. But in this life, we will have trouble. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful servants. We want to, to persevere. And so, Lord, remind us in your word this morning who we are and what you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. I mentioned last week that if there are 5,000 commentaries on Matthew, which there are, they all have a little different way of divvying up the Beatitudes. But when it comes to this passage, there's no such diversity. Everyone, most of the commentators, are crystal clear on what Jesus is saying. Now, there are many nuances and creative ways to say it, and some have put it this way. There, Jesus is talking about a personal dimension to our Christian life. He's talking about a public dimension. And that, that's one way to describe it. 
Jesus is describing a, a, a life of good deeds, also accompanied by a life of, of words. Um, there's, there, there's this idea of there, there's who, who we are versus what we say and what we do. And I think all of those have their merits. And just so you know, I have not come up with something nifty, creative, and that's never been seen by a scholar in the text before, okay? When pe- preachers start talking that way, be, be warned, okay? But, but here, here's, here's how I think about it. I think this will be helpful for us. Two, two, two parts to this passage. First of all, we're going to talk about personal influence, your personal influence, and then public illumination, your public illumination. So that's, that's where we're going to go. Personal influence, public illumination. Let's look at personal influence first. Jesus gets right to it in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. It's a statement of being. It doesn't say, act like the salt of the earth. Or if you do this, you are the salt of the earth. Or aspire to be the salt of the earth. It's an ontological statement. You are, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, salt. That's what it says. It's an emphatic you. Now, as we're thinking about salt, let me just say, I would imagine if I had sat down with most of you and kind of heard your culinary history, everybody in here has a salt story, right? You don't have a salt story? I have a salt story. It goes all the way back to 1982. I was, my parents took my sister and I to New Orleans for, this is Final Four weekend, and it's, they took us to the 1982 Final Four. There was a couple teams, Georgetown with Patrick Ewing, North Carolina with this guy named Jordan. Anyway, it was the greatest Final Four in the history of Final Fours. Sorry, John Yeager, in my opinion, that would be the case. So I think it was the greatest history, greatest in the history. But what, I don't remember just the game, okay, although it was, it was an ama- it was amazing set of games. Louisville was there, Houston, Faisal, Majama. What I distinctly remember as a 13-year-old about that trip was my introduction to this tasty pastry called the French beignet, right? And so we, we went to the Café du Monde. I've never heard of such a thing. You can fry wads of donuts and throw sugar on top of them, powdered sugar. I mean, you might as well cut a hole in your sternum and insert that beignet right into your heart, right? That's about how good it was for you. And I consumed these things and was greatly disappointed when we had to leave. But lo and behold, I found out you can buy boxes of beignet mix, which was really cool. And so as we returned home, we bought one of those boxes. And you know what happened the very first Saturday uh, when I had the opportunity as a 13-year-old. I, I, I didn't, instead of watching Scooby-Doo or Jetsons or the Flintstones that morning, I decided I can make these beignets all by myself. I am such a big boy, right? So I got all the stuff out. I got the sugar and the flour, and it said to do something about boiling oil. I didn't know what that was about, but I, I, somehow, some way, after it was all said and done, I had something that didn't look like a beignet, but it might have tasted okay. Anyway, that, that, that was kind of what I was looking at. So I remember I, I took it, and I went to put it in my mouth, and I took a bite, and I realized it was the foulest tasting thing I'd ever tasted in my life because guess what I had done? What all junior chefs do, I had substituted salt for the sugar, right? Now, I, gar- I guarantee you everybody in here has some kind of salt story. You know what I'm talking about, right? Now, when we think about salt that Jesus is talking about, 
that's not exactly what he has in mind. It's not like processed um, granular salt. Salt was a mineral. It is a mineral. And it was mined. It was carried around in big chunks. And certainly it was, they had tons of different purposes in the ancient world, medicinal and for flavoring and seasoning, but principally, principally, and I think this is the sense in which Jesus is talking about, it was a preservative. There were no refrigerators, of course, no refrigerators. Um, in the dry, hot, arid Middle East, you better pack your meat into some salt, okay, or it's not going to be lasting very long. And, and it seems that Jesus is just making a very simple correlation, one-to-one comparison the kingdom of God, he's saying, its values, particularly the Beatitudes, which we've been camping out on, as God's people embody those, live those out, those have a preservative function in the world. Now, to, to, before we kind of like dig into what, what I mean by that, let's talk about the condition of the world and why Jesus would say the world needs a preservative. There's lots of different ways in the Bible um, that the author, spiritual writers speak about the world. On one hand, there, there's like God's creation, the world, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. The world can also be our habitation, the place we live, where we make our abode. But there's also a sense which scripture talks about the world, and this is, this is very common in John's gospel and epistles, by the way, where the word world is talking about something spiritual. It's talking about the values and structures of fallen sinful man that are antithetical to the ways of God. We might call this worldliness. Here's a good definition of worldliness from, from David Wells. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. Is that not a perfect description of our current age? You see, the world, its values, its spiritual condition is in a state of spiritual entropy. And I've made my entropy joke a couple of times. What is entropy? The state of from going from order to disorder. And, you hear, and I got it from my chemistry teacher. You know, entropy is not what it used to be. Just think about it, okay? Meditate on it, okay? Over, over lunch today, but not too long. The world is, that's the world in terms of its worldliness. It's not getting better spiritually. It's always going to be moving towards spiritual decline, towards spiritual decay. And what Jesus is saying is that he has set us apart as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, to be a preservative against the decay and rot of our culture. And it's very interesting the way he says it. You are the salt. You are the salt. 
See, a lot of times we tend to think if only such and such would happen culturally, everything would be good. If only this thing was done or this law was passed, and understand that those are all, they have their place, this is not the point of this sermon. If only this structure was changed or only if this thing was undone or if we redid, redid that part of thing, then, then this would remedy all of our societal ills. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says you, it's an emphatic you, it means you and you only. In other words, there is no other, in terms of relational capital, there is no other source for this salt except you. You are the salt. You are the preservative, which means instead of reflexively oftentimes bemoaning and criticizing the fallen world, which is so easy to do, Jesus is inviting us to look at ourselves. Pastor Paul, I know the world is decaying, but who are you in that decaying world? Are, are you functioning as salt? That's Jesus' question to me. It's his question to you. Are you embodying, walking out, displaying the beatitudes and values of the kingdom? And these don't have to be super complex, right? This can be as simple as not gossiping about the person everybody's gossiping about at work and instead saying something positive. It can mean not shaving time off the company clock by leaving early. It might be being merciful and kind to a neighbor. It might mean opening up your home and introducing someone to the love and care of a family. And the list goes on, and we're going to build on this in just a second. But here's what we need to understand. This is a tough one. You are never not salt. You don't stop being salt. Jesus says, don't aspire to be salt. He doesn't say, if you do this, you are salt. He says, by virtue, by definition, by ontology, this is who you are. The question is, what kind of salt are you? That's the question. Are you a useful salt? Or are you not so useful? Look at verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, people have tried to make that verse say all sorts of things it doesn't say. Well, well, Pastor Paul, it sounds like Jesus is going to throw me out the door if I make a mistake and trample me under his feet. That's not what it means, okay? Um, it, it, it doesn't, it's not pertaining to salvation. It's pertaining to usefulness, Okay? So we have this idea that when, when, when we know this to be the case, when people would get their salt, usually from the Dead Sea area, mine, that would, would take it, that, that they would put it in a bag, and in it would be all sorts of other things mixed in, pebbles and rocks and dirt. The one thing that you did not want to do was to get that salt wet. Because when you got the salt wet, it would begin to dissolve. And then sometimes all you would be left with, if it was wet, was just a bag of rocks. Good for nothing. And so what they would do, instead of dumping that out in your vegetable garden, okay, 
which would kill it, they dumped it on the street because apparently that's where you threw everything you didn't want, right? And people would trample over it. It was useless. That's Jesus's point. Now, a number of years ago, Susan and I and the kids had, had gone off somewhere on, on vacation, and my sister-in-law and her kids had come into town, and we're going to take advantage of the opportunity to stay at our house while, while we were gone. They're from Tennessee, so in the summer, if you're in Tennessee, you come to Florida. You get the idea, right? So, so they walk in the garage, and they were immediately taken up short by some, some, something wasn't right. Something did not smell correctly, right? And they're looking around, and they're like, I, we don't know what it is, just something just kind of in the air. And they kind of walk through the house and walk through the bathrooms, and has a, has a pipe burst? Has, is there a dead animal? Like, is it a squirrel, a mouse? I mean, if it was a squirrel, that would be awesome. But you get what I'm saying, right? Like, something's dead, and like, they couldn't find it but, it, it. but it still wasn't right. So she went over and just said, hmm, let me check this out. She opened the freezer and had it open about a millimeter, about a millimeter, when the blast of putrid decaying air hit her in the face. And what had happened, of course, was that Publix had a run on meat, and Susan went and bought all this meat, packed it in the freezer, we left and were gone for two or three weeks, and while we were gone, the power had gone out, and the breaker had tripped in the garage, which meant when the power came back on, the freezer did not come back on, and that meat just sat there, and it festered, and it rotted, and it got all the things in it that meat does, and, and for teenage boys, this is an awesome thing, but, but for, for the rest of us, we don't like this. And she had opened the door, and it was so bad, she couldn't get near it, and she called the only people in Tallahassee that she knew at the time, Scott and Julia Steak. She called them, and she's like, Scott, can you come over and, like, help us clean out this refrigerator? So Scott, of course, showed up with his dad, okay, and they were taking a look at the fridge, and they couldn't get near the fridge, and it only took them a brief moment to realize this freezer is irredeemable, right? Okay, we can do nothing but put duct tape all around it and haul it off, okay, to the front road and leave it, by which, by the way, until we got home, every passerby thought somebody had died up in our place, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You can't change, it, it was still a freezer. It was still a freezer, right? It just wasn't functional. It was useless. And in the same way, Jesus says, if you are a citizen of the kingdom, if you are a follower of Christ, the issue is not whether or not you are salt. It's just how salty are you? Are you preserving? Are you influencing? Are you, are you flavoring? Or are you so diluted, carnal, watered-down, worldly, that you're virtually useless. That's his point. Now, I want you just to, in a minute, for, for a moment here, just to, before we leave this point, I want you to think about your spheres of influence, the places you work, where you live, your relationships, where you do your hobbies, where you interact, your, your world, your life, the places that you inhabit. And I want you to begin to ask this question, what would change in this arena, if I were to begin to embody the Beatitudes that Christ 
talks about here. What, what, what would happen in that conflict at work if I was merciful? What would happen to that disagreement if I was a peacemaker, not a conflict instigator? What would happen if I come, came alongside that person, that neighbor, that friend who I know is really hurting, and instead of telling them all the things they're doing wrong, there's time for that, you just mourn with them. What would happen, siblings, marriages, family relationships, if everyone just decided it's not the arrogant, the boastful, and the assertive who will inherit the household, right? It's the meek. It's the meek. Just, I want you to begin just to think about the claim that these Beatitudes make. And as you begin to wrestle with those and begin to see yourself as, you know what? I'm, I'm never not salt. In other words, I can't take a time out from being salt. I'm always salt in whatever phase I'm in, whether I'm with one person or a hundred or I'm at work or I'm at home. And the question is, what am I exuding? When I walk away from a situation, have I, have I served a preserving function? Have I upheld what is right and good and beautiful and true? And I, and I promise you, as you begin to think about this and all the spheres of your life and your relationships, God will begin to give you a vision of what it means to be effective salt. But the one thing that is super clear from this, you are salt. Just a matter of what kind that you are. Now, as we're transitioning to this second point, everything I said, let's put that right here for a second. But let me say, if that's all we said, if this was the only metaphor we use for our Christian life, we would be woefully incomplete. In other words, I could make a case that you could embody saltiness, but really live primarily a very personal, privatized religion. You're just going around being nice, going around being moral, doing your thing, um, upholding, the, upholding the good, upholding the Ten Commandments, but people still not have any idea who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. This is the great curse, right, of the civil religious culture of Christendom, where everybody's going around doing good, but nobody's quite sure why we're doing good or what it points to or what it means. I think it's the crisis facing the church. It's not just about what we do, although it's about that. It's also about what we say. And that brings us to our second point, public illumination. And I would venture to say this is going to be the hardest of these to really wrap our life around. Let me read the verses again, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, be, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, unless we kind of understand the illustrations that Jesus uses, this, the full impact of what he's saying here won't really come home to this because we take light for granted, right? I remember last week, the power went out for about 30 seconds in our house during the storm, and you would have thought the zombie apocalypse was upon us, right? But dad, I don't have internet. Dad, I can't stream. Dad, I can't brush my teeth. I can't wash my hair. You know, it, was, it was like, it was, it was on. And of course, growing up in North Florida, we, in the Panhandle, we all understand what it's like to go without power. But we failed. It's easy to forget the idea that for most of millenniums in the history of the world, there was no such thing as electricity, Right? And we forget how much electricity has changed our lives. It's allowed us to work at night, play at night, study at night, play football and basketball games at night, to ride at night. To, to, it's, it's totally revolutionized our lives in ways we just totally take for granted. Obviously, not so in the ancient world. Light was a precious commodity, right? So if you were going to be up at night in your house, and in the ancient Middle East, those would have undoubtedly been sort of one giant room, okay? You had to have some candles, if you want lamps, if you wanted to go outside, you had to have some torches, and by all means, if you were going to travel, that light was a huge deal, particularly for the place that you were going. So if you go to the, to the Middle East now, in Israel, you'll still see this, almost every village town, city is built on a hill. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. There's military reasons. It maximized the sunlight and the heat and all those, all those sorts of things. But one of those things was so that they could be seen by travelers. And in order for that to happen, they had to light not just one torch, but many, a multitude of torches. And when they did, they could be seen easily from a distance. Now, you may say, because, you know, well, what, what, what does one torch matter? It's like asking, what does one vote matter? Well, in Florida, it means a lot, right? We, we know this. But, 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 a, but a group of torches, do you see where Jesus is going with this? Is a powerful witness. It's a powerful sign. And the reason Jesus uses this analogy, just like salt, the reason we need light, and we've, I won't spend too much time on this, you know already, we live in a spiritual darkness, we live in a dark, decaying world that's corrupt. And here's, here's the chief function of light that I think distinguishes it from salt. Okay, keep this in mind. Salt keeps things from getting worse, and that's important. But salt by itself will not necessarily make anything better. Does that make sense? It's light. Something has to permeate the darkness. Not only do we need to stop the darkness, but now something has to permeate it. Something has to push it back. The, the darkness has to be dispelled so that we can see what's in the darkness. The light without salt is great, but without light, the darkness will persist. I want you to think about this for a second when Matthew announces the coming of Christ. And I want you to, to look, darkness and light are one of the most common motifs in all of Scripture. And I want you to hear how Matthew describes this. In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, meaning Jesus, by the sea, 
in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, here we are, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So we have to remember the first thing, that the true light, the purest light, of course, is Jesus himself. He tells us in John 8, I am the light of the world. But now Jesus says something, it's crazy talk, if you think about it. It's profound. He says, not only am I the light, but you are the light as well. By virtue of the fact that we have union with Christ, by virtue of the fact that we've been united with him in his death and his resurrection, we also are the light. In fact, one of the principal ways that Jesus illuminates the world is through you. Let me show you how how I think this works. Look Look back at verse 16. Let your light shine before others. There's your public piece. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, this is the difference in influence and illumination, right? Salt and light have lots in common. But while salt simply preserves Light illuminates, it dispels. In other words, the good that you do as salt, it's the light that communicates to people why you're doing it. See, it's, it's perfectly possible to be a very good citizen and not be light at all. See, unless people know why you're doing what you're doing, they will not be able to give glory to their Father in heaven. You see, that, that's the purpose of being light. The purpose of being light isn't just to preserve. It's to illuminate, to show, to display, to be seen, so that people may give glory to their Father who's in heaven. You see, one of, the, one of the chief principal purposes of your light is that people know where your good deeds come from. See, when you embody the fruit of the Spirit in the workplace, people need to know why. Oh, he's such a nice person. He's so patient. I can't believe you're so patient with the boss and the terrible boss. Why are you patient? I'm patient because of Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind with me. You know, they're, they're, they're so giving. They'll, they'll loan us out their tools. They'll invite us into your home. They're incredibly hospitable. Do they know why you're hospitable? Do they know that you're hospitable because Jesus welcomed you and gave you hospitality? See, at some point along, did they, I mean, you could play this game all along the way, right? They, they serve. They're serving. They give to the poor, the homeless. They do all these, all these great things. But do they know why you're doing them? Jesus says, When you're light, you're telling them, this is why. And you're pointing to the fact that Jesus is the way, 
the truth, and the life, and that they give glory as a result to the Father in heaven. Now understand, not everyone's going to receive that that way. That's what we just said at the beginning of the sermon. (laughs) On one hand, sometimes there'll be a profound distaste and dislike for that, but simultaneously, there will be this great attraction. There will be this great testimony, and such as it is for the witness of the church and the world. Otherwise, what? We're the church in Laodicea. Jesus says, you are lukewarm, and I'll just spit you out of my mouth. That's the idea. Just like salt, remember, it's not an issue whether you're light or not. The question is, what kind of light are you? You're always a light. Jesus doesn't say, aspire to be the light. You could be the light if you do this. You are the light. What sort of light are you displaying? One of the things I never realized, we have four kids now, they're almost all grown. One thing I never realized is that part of the chief job description of a dad is going around and turning out lights in the house. Amen, dads, okay? It's a special, it's a special job of dads, all right? And, and we say, well, you know, well, why, why do we do that? It's, oh, we don't want the electricity to run. And I've saved 30 cents over the last 30 years by turning out lights. But there's something a little deeper, right? It's like, it's not supposed to work that way. What's the light doing when no one's there? So I'm at the age now where I get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom and all that. And so one of the things that I do at 2 a.m. is I go around and I flip off the lights, okay? And the light, though, that bothers me like no other is the light in the garage. So I'll go out in the garage, it's 2 a.m., bright, fluorescent. It is like Las Vegas up in there. And it just grates on me. So I'll turn it off because that's not what light is intended to do. It's not intended to be shut out where it functions uselessly. See that, see that, that useful uselessness kind of idea? Light is only useful to the extent that it gives light to others. There's no such thing as a private light or a light that doesn't illuminate for someone or some reason. You see Jesus' point here. Here's what R.T. France says. The job description of a disciple is not fulfilled by private personal holiness but includes the witness of public exposure. Where in your life, is there a place in your life where your light shines before men? I don't mean where you're just salt. That's important. Sometimes that's the foundation for being light, granted. But, but never is, are things to terminate, right, with salt. At some point, after inviting your neighbor over 12 times to your house, they need to know why. They need, they, they, they need to understand what this is all about. This last point is so important about being liked. Because let's remember, the world will applaud your good deeds, or at least some of them, until you bring Jesus into it. Um, I read something from Burke Parsons who said this, The world wants Christians to affirm every religion except their own. 
and we've kind of bought into that. When in the reality is, Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. And only by bringing Jesus into it, so to speak, will people know why we do what we do. Because we know that it's in Jesus that all the fullness of the deity dwells. And if he's going to be anything but a simple prophet or teacher or moral example, if he's going to be the Son of God, we have to hold him up as such. Otherwise, people only get a whisper. They only get a shadow. They only get an echo. Let me ask you this as we close with this. What keeps you from being light? What keeps you from speaking up? And, and this, is, this is for all of us. Maybe it's reputation. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's career repercussions, social repercussions, relational repercussions. But it's worthy to remember that as we come to the table, the reason we do this publicly and not privately at our seats is that we are identifying ourselves with the Son of Man. We are salt, we are light, which is particularly important on this day, Palm Sunday, where Jesus came riding in on a donkey, and his followers thought they were following him to the throne, when in reality, they were following him to the cross. That's what we do as his people. That's why we can say we are sorrowful, but always rejoicing struck down but not destroyed. In this life, Jesus says, you will have trouble. Fear not. I've overcome the world. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and just spend a moment or two preparing your hearts to come to the table. And as you do, I'm going to ask our elders and leaders to come and prepare to serve the Lord's elements.